This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. Today, my guest, actually a fellow radio presenter, so quite nice to have her on the show. It's Sarah Jane Makwala King. I hope I pronounced that correctly. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> Hi, Great. Janice. Great to have you as my guest today. And Sarah Jane, we're going to be talking about your new book, Mad Bad Love, and how the things we love can nearly kill us. And this is actually your second book. Your first book was Killing Caroline. And for the listener who doesn't know who you are, doesn't know what Killing Caroline is about, you do actually about um, halfway through, well, yeah, nearly halfway through the book, you do give brief background into um, into that, into what Killing Caroline is about. For the listener who doesn't know and who may not know who you are, give me a very brief nutshell summary of that and how you started that and how we go into this book. Okay, so Killing Caroline, as you said, that was my debut. It came out in 2017, and it's the story, it's it's a memoir, and it's the story of my conception, my birth, and my subsequent adoption. So I was born um, in Johannesburg in 1980, and my biological dad is black, and my biological mum is white. And of course, um, given what was going on, the atrocities going on in the country at the time, uh, that was an illegal relationship. And so... My biological mother decided when I was born, she didn't know when I was born, whether I was going to be the product of her marriage with her white husband or the product of her affair with my black father, what she was going to get. And she got me. Um, And about five or six weeks after I was born, it became quite clear that I was the product of the affair that she'd had with my dad. Um, And so her and her husband made a decision to take me to the UK where they were actually both originally from. Um, and I was adopted there at the age of seven weeks old into um, my family, the people that I grew up calling mum and dad. And when my biological mother and her husband returned to South Africa after um, giving me up for adoption, they told everyone that I had died, that Caroline, as I had been born, um, had died. And, and the book really sort of tells that story and then the themes that kind of come, that one would imagine come up with that around identity, around race, around South Africa, around transracial adoption. I was, you know, I grew up in a white family, a very, very white part of, of, of England. And that really w- was the story. And then I guess Mad Bad Love, people have sort of said, oh, well, it's a sequel. And, and I suppose in a way it is a sequel, but it's also a prequel. Um, it kind of goes back. Yes, it's, it's it, told it in two times. It really does. And, and so I hope for those people who, thank you very much, read Killing Caroline, and there were, I'm pleased to say, quite a few people. Um, it, it doesn't repeat that story in any way. As you said, there is a marker sort of halfway through the book that briefly recaps caps those that those events for people who may not have been sure but or or may not be aware of it but but mad bad love really talks about what happens when the issues that I raise in killing Caroline don't get dealt with it's really about unprocessed trauma Janice to be honest 
Yes, it is. And I just want to say, um, you say that, that your mother and, and her husband, they came back and they told the family that you had died, this baby that they had taken overseas had died, which mm. seemed very feasible because they told everyone that they were taking you overseas for medical treatment. That's right. So yeah. It seemed feasible to everybody that they came back without a baby, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah. so nobody questioned it and nobody had a problem with it. Nobody asked you know, how, what, when, why, and um, and everyone just, just carried on as before. And we are going to talk a lot more about this whole unresolved trauma issue. But first, we are going to take a brief break. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. You are listening to People of the Book, and my guest today is Sarah Jane Makwala King. We're talking about her new book, Mad Bad Love, and how the things we love can nearly kill us. So before the break, we chatted briefly about Sarah Jane's previous book, Killing Caroline. And as I said, if you are not aware of what that's about, there is a very brief little nutshell summary about halfway through this book, just to give you some background. But this is an entirely new and different story where Sarah Jane talks about um, her life currently. It's not, I don't know, I mean, many people are calling it a sequel. I don't know if it is. It does take place in two timelines. It talks about... Uh, well, I wouldn't say the present, but kind of like what's going on now, what what happened then, when Sarah Jane has met the love of her life, Enva. <laughs> and she talks a lot about love. And you describe love, you know, we talk about that, that the love of your life. And you talk about um, the first time you fell in love and that little boy who you spotted across the playground and mm. he was, you know, you know, in at nursery school, he was completely unaware of you. But um, you know, that love doesn't really exist. We know that. And you talk about your annual check-in to the clinic. Now I assumed naively that the clinic was the same as rehab. No, no, no. So a bit later <laughs> on, when you spoke about them removing you from rehab and telling you, no, you need to recover, and I'm thinking, but you're in rehab to do that, and how can they kick you out and tell you that they'll only take you back when everything is sorted out? I'm like, well, I'm very confused. But they yeah. sent you to the clinic. Yeah, Tell that's me right. About okay, so really? rehab, rehab, and it's and it's it is important to distinguish because you know rehab, um, the rehab center that I went to was was an addiction rehab center, and it was to help me recover from and deal with or, or begin the path to recovery uh, of a number of addictions: drug, alcohol, eating disorders, self harm, all of that stuff. Um, but while I was in the rehab center, I, and you know, rehab is hard. I think, I think rehab, rehab is a huge privilege. You know, I was massively privileged to be able to go in the first place. That, there's no question around that. But it's, it's not a walk in the park. If you, if you really are going in because you are unhappy, discontent, 
unable to continue with your life as it presents itself in that moment and you really want to get well it requires an awful lot of work right it requires you're going in there to to change your life and to change your outlook and to change your the way that you feel about yourself um and so and that requires an awful lot of vulnerability an awful lot of bravery i think um and an awful lot of work and a lot of the stuff that happens in in rehab or happened to me for me was it was actually overwhelming and it led me you know obviously I couldn't drink in rehab and I couldn't take drugs in rehab and they you know used to watch me like a hawk around my food but I did manage to start self-harming again and and that's when you know they kind of said look we can't you need to be contained we can't you have man- you, in, you, you know. managed to hide a blade in your hair I'm like wow that's genius. well that was that was yeah I did and and I mean that's just a, an example of, of the desperation really yes. that's no. Um, and, and so they said, look, you need to go to the clinic. And it was a psychiatric clinic. And I, so I went to a, a psychiatric ward, um, where they were able to con- contain me a lot more. Um, you know, and, and, and that is where I met Enver, who, yeah, as I describe in the book, um, the love of my life. But let's be honest. And as you do say in the book, rehab, psychiatric care, that's hard. That is, is difficult, but the work starts. Once you leave and you have to stay clean, that's the hard work. Yeah. And again, it's very important to differentiate between between rehab and the clinic where in the clinic, you know, I call it the clinic. But, you know, it's every. Yes. You know, that is around mental health. And that isn't, you know, nobody has a choice as to whether they're, they're, you know, they've got a mental health illness or whatever. Um, I have a choice every day as a recovering addict as to whether I pick up drink and alcohol and drugs and all the other things. So, um, yeah, the, the, the work that I need to do, the introspective work that I need to do as a recovering addict is something that I will always need to do. And that's what for me, you know, it's about, we talk about one day at a time. I'm sure people have heard that. Um, and, and, and that's what it is. And and sometimes, you know, I'm 15 years clean and sober now. Um, and so the one day at a times are less, I don't white knuckle in the way that I used to. Life is just life and 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 not using drink or drugs or any mind altering substances is is a part of my life. But it still requires me. I'll always be an addict. And so it's still being in that position still requires me every day to introspect and to look at the things that trouble me uh to work through resentments because these are all the things that my addiction feeds on um and then in terms of the mental health thing that's yes it's still my responsibility but that requires um more of a sort of a team of people to you know i make sure that i um if i'm not feeling good i can i'm I go to the doctor and I speak to somebody uh, and I therapy, you know, I go to therapy. I'm yes. a big believer in therapy and talking therapies um, or whatever it may be to, you know, for one's mental health. So, yeah. And they are things that for me, I will need to and I do have as a priority and will probably need to do that for the rest of my life. And that's OK, because I live a I live a beautiful life. Yes. And you're you're lucky to do that. And you are clearly now self-aware. Yeah, I think, you know. Self-awareness isn't even really the, the, it's, isn't even really the, the key to sobriety. You know, faith without works is dead. And the same is true of self-awareness. Self-awareness without works is also dead. I know an awful lot of people who, um, you know, that we talk about rock bottom as, as addicts and I know an awful lot and, and how, and I think sometimes I think maybe too many TV movies have, have, have got to peddle this rather false narrative is that you have a rock bottom and then you go and that's it. And now I'm not going to do drugs anymore. And I'm going to do whatever it is I need to yeah. do not to. 
do. Um, whereas the reality is that isn't that often that isn't the case, particularly, you know, and I write about this um, in the book in respect of um, Enver is that the, the awareness that thing, you know, and, and Enver, um, I write about his heroin addiction in the book. There's no denying from the things that I write about in the book that, that things are bad, right? And I write about things in yes. the book, Enver, you know, when we brought our daughter home, because he's the father of my child, when he was in active heroin addiction, he stole from me and he stole our child's clothes, Right. And for most people, you think, but surely that's a rock bottom. Now, he's a perfectly intelligent person. He knows that's a rock bottom. He's self-aware enough to know that that type of behavior signals a problem with drugs. Right. I mean, the fact that you're a heroin addict is a problem. with You've got a problem. But that wasn't enough. And so it's not always the self-awareness. Sometimes th- there's stuff that comes after that. I knew long before I went into rehab that I had a problem with, you know, I had an eating disorder. I had a problem with drinking drugs, but I was, I wasn't ready to do anything about yeah. it. Right. It's the marriage between the self-awareness and the readiness to do something about it. There's got to be those two things. Yes. But also Enver at the beginning, I think I, I can't remember which timeline this was in. I think you were, first pregnant, I can't remember, he was a highly functioning addict. Highly functioning. Highly functioning. And yet, Janice, also not, because what he was, a, he was a highly functioning addict in that, you know, he he had managed to, because he'd been using for so long, the deceit, the web of deceit that he was able to weave and make completely believable um, was, you know, it was really convincing, but actually not a high functioning addict because he couldn't hold down a job, yes, even he though he, purported, he said he had a job, he but he didn't wanted to. Yeah. So he was high functioning in his addiction. And I think that's a really important distinction as well to make is that when we talk about high functioning addiction or high functioning addicts, we mean that they are able to, you know, and I am one of those people. I'm, I was always a high functioning addict. I never lost you know, a house. I lost a job, but I know, you know, that's because I was objectionable. I was never in the gutter, right? I was never, as I describe Enver being, you know, homeless on the street. I was never that. I was high functioning. I was a functioning addict. I managed to keep a quote unquote normal life going while also an active addiction. Enver didn't do that, but he was very high functioning in his, I'm going to not swear, but in, in his, in his deceit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in <you>. his deceit <laughs> um, this is people of the book and I am chatting to Sarah Jane McCullough King I love it when you read to me this is people of the book with Janice Leibovitz I'm Janice Leibovitz and you're listening to People of the Book. My guest today is Sarah Jane McQuala King. We're talking about her book, Mad Bad Love and How the Things We Love Can Nearly Kill Us. Sarah Jane, as I said, the book is told in two timelines, kind of present day or, or present day for when you wrote it and you wrote mm-hmm. about your pregnancy and, and your, um, your partner, Enva and you also wrote about you, you went back in time when you met him and your past when you were much younger. There's a fabulous description in the book of um, one of your therapists, a Dr. Sevchik. <laughs> yeah. your, your description of her is just fabulous. 
and your description of, of your interaction with her and your... It's so funny that you say that, Janice, because Dr. Sevchik is not, in fact, that doctor's real name. Yes, but well, I'm assuming anyone, not, but... but no, uh, but if anyone goes to her, you will instantly know who she is. <laughs> Shame. I'm assuming names and places and, and things like that, you've changed, obviously, but, but she just sounds like the most fabulous character and your description of of your encounter with her is just amazing and just goes to show that your your writing ability and your your amazing and incredible insight into an ability to to inject humor into to something like this is is just fabulous and it just makes for amazing reading but we spoke earlier about the trauma um, attached to the unresolved issues of you being left as a very small baby with this other family when your parents, well, your mother and the man she was married to, who was not your father, decided to remove you from South Africa, take you to the UK, leave you there, come back to South Africa and tell their family here that you had died. And they left you there. You grew up with another family. And you spoke about all the unresolved trauma that comes along with that. When you were approximately 29 years old, I think it is, you attended a talk with Paul Sunderland called Mm. Adoption and Addiction. Talk to me a bit about that and how this helps and and how it helped and, and helped you move on from the space that you were in. Sure. So as, as a sort of precursor to that, the people always ask me as an adopted person, when did you find out you were adopted? And the truth of the matter is I've always known whatever, whatever conversation it was that my, my parents, my adoptive parents had, they did it very skillfully in terms of communicating that information because, you know, my brother, my late brother and I always knew we were adopted and people say, oh, it must have been obvious because you were black and they were white, but, um, n- not necessarily, but that's something that I talk about in Killing Caroline. I was about two years clean. I was living back in London and I was attending, you know, my 12 step meetings and I got a, somebody said to me, oh, there's going to be a, there's going to be a a lecture happening in South Kensington about the connection between adoption and addiction. And I thought that sounds interesting. So I went along and what I heard in that room, what I heard Paul Sunderland describe was like, it just knocked me for six because what he, what he did was, he gave language to something that I had, that I had not previously had the language for. I always thought that the reason I was, you know, an addict and the reason that I struggled so much and the reason that I always want, you know, I, I tried to kill myself by the first, you know, by the age of 13 was that there was something inherently wrong with me. And what Paul Sunderland explained was that there was nothing wrong with me. And in the same way that Gabriel Marte talks about today, I was having a perfectly normal reaction to an abnormal situation. It is abnormal for biological mothers to relinquish their children right? Adoption is an abnormal social construct. And, and we really do have to start doing away with, you know, we call it in the adoptee community, the rainbows and unicorns narrative of adoption, because it's harmful. And essentially, what he spoke about in that in that lecture was something that we called the primal wound. And it's the severance that happens when a biological mother or and child are separated. 
And people have often said to me, but how could you remember that? How do you, you can't, it can't have had any impact on your life. You were seven years old. Science tells us absolutely the opposite. You know, there's so many books coming out now. The Body Keeps Score, um, What Happened to You by um, Bruce Parry, that talk about trauma, and particularly childhood trauma, um, and that we feel it as infants, tiny, tiny, tiny babies. Um, and, and it's stored. That is a trauma that is stored in the limbic system. It's cellular. It's not something, um, that, that one can escape. And it's a very unpopular opinion because it suddenly makes us have to look at adoption, this thing that we've called this win-win in society for so many years through a slightly different lens. And, and there's a lot of people Within that, I hate the term, the triad of adoption, but within the adoption industry, because it is an industry, who, for whom when they hear that, get quite defensive about it, because very often they are, it's an adoption industry and there's money to be made. They are adoptive parents or hopeful adoptive parents and all they want to do is have a child. But we have to start making adoptees the focus of adoption. We have to start making adoption adoptee centered. And in order to do that, we need to acknowledge the trauma that is connected to adoption. Right. And it's a difficult conversation to have, but it's such a necessary one for the very reason that Paul went on to explain in this lecture, which is that adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide. Adoptees are overrepresented in treatment centers, uh, psychiatric units and jails. It's not a coincidence, right? All of those right. things. And so often, and, and people say, but your parents loved you. Yeah, they did. My limbic system doesn't know that though. It makes no difference. It may, you know, in the same way that my limbic system doesn't know seven weeks old to 42 years old, yeah. the trauma happened. And what we need to stop doing is saying, but you know, adoptive parents are so well-intentioned or, but you're so lucky, you should be so grateful, your parents loved you. All those things, not the gratitude part, because that's an awful thing to say to any child, but but that the, your parents loved you or your, they only wanted the best for you can, can be true. It's not, you know, alongside this enormous trauma. And, and Paul speaks about that separation feeling life-threatening to that infant. And he gives that as a reason why later in life so many adoptees um, do do deal with um, suicidal ideation and attempted suicide. But what it gave me at that moment was it made me realise there's nothing wrong with you. You're not a bad person, right? Because that's what I'd believed. And that then really, that that moment kind of sparked a very, very long journey to realizing why I am the way I am and why I do the things I do and why, as the book, you know, the song says, I'm always looking for love in all the wrong places because it's attachment disorder. That's what yes. we're talking about. And unhealed attachment disorder very often presents itself as love addiction, as you'll read about in the book, codependency. And it's really common. This isn't, you know, this is something unique to it, to adopted people. It just presents itself yes. in us. For, as I've, you know, quite understandable reasons, but an awful lot of us are dealing with abandonment issues, are dealing with attachment issues. An awful lot of us stay in relationships that aren't good for us. I'm interested to know, and I don't know whether this would, would have been covered um, in a talk like that. What if you have um, a brother and a sister, both adopted, 
And I mean, obviously, I mean, this, it's a generalization and, and you're saying a high percentage of adoptees do have these issues. That's not to say that they all do. But say you've got a brother and a sister, they're both adopted and one represents with all these issues and the other one does not. They are absolutely fine. They are comfortable. They settle. They are well adjusted. They grow up, they do well at school, they get married, have their own children, never have um, any inclination to go searching out their biological parents. And yet the other adopted sibling shows all these, um, represents all these things that you've just described. I- I'm interested to know what his take on that is, that, that you'll have two adopted children brought up by the same adopted parents who love them the same, bring them up the same, but you'll have one who behaves in one way and one who behaves in a completely opposite way. I can only um, speak from my experience, Janice, and I, and I don't know a situation like yeah. that. <laughs> I don't. And, and, that's, and that's not to say it doesn't exist. It may well exist. I think the other thing that we need to remember, Janice, and you, and you touched on something really interesting there, is that you're saying, you know, they grow up with no problems and they do well at school and they do. And that happens that with normal, me. that happens with non-adopted siblings that, as well. That was me, that was me, and I presented as somebody, to, you know, fine for a really, really long time. And we talk about in, in adoptee circles coming out of the fog. Um, and I think that can't be underestimated either. When the narrative around your familial situation is you should be grateful, you're really lucky, those other people want didn't want you, but these people do, how easy do you think it is to stick your head above the parapet at the age of 10, 13, 15, 19 and go, actually, that's not my experience at all. Um, how easy, you know, when, when, society as a whole has pretty much got your has pretty much given you the narrative of how you should feel about your life right so how easy is it then to then kind of go that's not how I feel though and often and even now you know here I am at the age of 42 the amount of pushback I get when I talk about adoption trauma from people who've got no experience of adoption They've just got along with that narrative. Oh, everyone's right? an expert. I mean, don't you know? <laughs> you know, and so, and so I think that's a, that's a really important point to make is that very often when we're saying, Oh, but I know an adoptee and they don't feel like that. Are you sure? Are you sure they don't? Cause I mean, I get it all the time being an only child. I get told, Oh, but only children behave like this and only children feel like that. And I always say, but I don't. You know, don't, don't tell me how I am supposed to feel and how I am supposed to behave and how it's that blanket, those blanket statements and those assumptions. And, you know, it's, it's people feel more comfortable when you fit into their box. Absolutely. That is, yeah. you know, you have, you have to fit into their narrative and their reality. You know, and that's why there is now a growing, thank goodness, a growing number of adoptees who speak out, of which I consider my proudly consider myself one, uh, who speak out unapologetically and say, no, 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 this is our truth. You need to start respecting us as the experts of our own experience. And also, I think I think that by doing that, you become instrumental in creating change in the way things are done and the way things are spoken about. And the way these things are approached. Yeah, that's why I do it. And hopefully um, future adoptees will have 
a more positive experience and will be I really hope so. Yeah, I, I, I really so. hope so, Janice, because you know, adopt people say, Oh, you're so anti adoption and do you want to see the end of adoption? And and the truth of it is I'm not naive enough to know that adoption's not going anywhere. But that doesn't mean that we can't change it and, and address the fundamental problems. We can't sit and be okay with those statistics that I gave you earlier. Yes. And then, you know, and we we can't sit with that. We can't. We can't do that. Every time we lose another member of the adoptee to commu- um, community um, to, to suicide, it's heartbreaking and it's unnecessary also. Yes, because the support needs to be there and hopefully that can be changed and improved. I hope so. I really do. By, by people speaking out like you do. Yeah. That it would be the win, really. And by people listening, you know, it's all very well. <laughs> but <laughs> you need people to listen. And to listening it. is one thing. Hearing is another thing. For sure. They need For to sure. listen. They need to hear. And they need to take positive and corrective action. Yeah. For that sure. That is the key that you want from all of this. Mm. You are listening. To me, Janice Leibovitz, I am talking to Sarah Jane McQuilla-King. We're talking about her book, Mad Bad Love, and how the things we love can nearly kill us. You're listening to People of the Book. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. You are listening to People of the Book. I'm talking to Sarah Jane McQuilla-King about her book, Mad Bad Love, and how the things we love can nearly kill us. With all this said and and all the issues that we'd love to improve, I mean, we can sit here and, and change the world, can't we? It's, uh, yeah. it's great to do that. How is this narrative going to play out in your daughter's life? What I mean, I, I assume you, you will be completely transparent and open and and honest with her about all that has gone before, all that has happened with you, all that's happened with her father. And what do you want her to get out of all of this? You know, she's she's not even three yet. So there are, um, in terms of her picking up the book anytime soon, I'm not particularly <laughs> worried about that. Um, but 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 one day, if she's anything like me, um, you know, she we hope she'll be an avid reader and she will she will read this. But uh, by then, by the time that happens. I would imagine, I would like to think that everything that she reads, there won't be any surprises. Um, I think, you know, being, being in recovery is a commitment to honesty, essentially, and a commitment to openness. And being a memoir author is the same. Um, and so, so I'm sure I'm a horrible oversharer, um, in some senses, which again makes for a good memoir author. Um, but I, we, we have a, we are open in in our household and we're open about in an age appropriate way of yes. course but we're we're open about mental health issues we're open about addiction um and and that's the best i can do and you know i'm sure that when she gets to 13 she'll say we're terrible awful parents because that's what 13 year olds do isn't it i say i hate it. to tell you it happens a lot earlier than 13 oh i'm sure you know i mean she's <laughs> she's already throwing her toys now and she's two and a half and because you know we won't let her do some arbitrary thing but all we can do is 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 create or do our best to create a space where she's able to come to us and come to me and say mummy what about this and daddy what about this um that's the best that I can hope for the book isn't for her yes right the, no, no, and, I, and I think that's I think that's really important that this isn't a 
have a read of that and find out who mummy and daddy are. The book is for other people. The book is for adopted people. The book is for people, addicts. The book is for people who love addicts. The book is for, you know, people dealing with, with the issues that I talk about. The book is not for my daughter. We are for my daughter, our daughter, yes. and the conversations that we have in our home and, you know, the, the, the way that we bring her up. But, you know, at some point she'll, she'll read it, I'm sure, or she might not. She might have no interest. And that would be good too, because that then means that maybe we've done our job well enough that she's like, well, mum, dad, you've told me all there is to know, exactly. really. And, you know, we'll have to see. I don't know. I, I, it's a, it's a difficult one. And I'm sure those people who will read it will say, oh, but your daughter might read that one day. Yep. She might. But the, the, for me, parenting and you, oh my goodness, I wish somebody had told me this three years ago at this, it being the hardest thing you'll ever do, because it is so hard, isn't it? But for me, it's about, creating a space for her at whatever age she is to be able to come and say, I've got a question. I need to talk to you about this. I hope we get it right. We probably won't, but we do our best to do it. I think as parents, we never get everything right all the time. We just hope that, that we get as much as possible right. And the we hope we get the important stuff right. Yeah. And unfortunately, none of our kids arrive holding how-to manual in their hand, which is a great pity. But, you know, as you say, you're as open and honest as possible. And I think that, that the, the win for you will be when she doesn't need to read the books because she has heard it all. And you've been so open and honest with her that she doesn't need to, to read it because you've told it to her and you know, she, she knows about it from you guys. And if she reads it, Janice, I want her to read it because she's someone who's into books, not yes. because she feels that there's something she needs to know about her parents that she can't come to us and ask. Or that there's something that she feels has been hidden from her. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. And um, I think from reading the book, I think people will understand that the fam- your family, Inverse family, there's a very open relationship now. I mean, that's... I mean, sure, let's, let's not kid. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's going to be plain easy sailing from, from here on out. And that's what happens when we have partners and families and when there's other people involved. And I wish, you know, life just isn't ever plain sailing, unfortunately. And things always crop up. You know, for for me, I didn't know how I was going to end the book, right? I really didn't. And it sort of got to around February, I guess. And I was thinking, oh, the deadline's getting ever closer. And I wasn't quite sure. And then an event that I talk about at the end of the book happened. And it signified, of course, it's not the end. Because here we are and we continue every day, yes. don't we? But it signaled a, a, a great point to end the book with and the message of kind of taking responsibility for oneself acknowledging one's own pain and one's own journey acknowledging other people's journeys that may be different to yours and other people's healing processes or not you know not we can't not everyone recovers right yes we don't um and i think that was a really important thing to note as well that this was never meant to be and they lived happily ever after right yes. i've I think I've written this in both my books now. I don't believe in happily ever afters. I don't think there's any such thing. I believe in we make a choice as to how we want to live the rest of our lives. And yeah, it was never meant to be that the happy ever after and the, and, and they lived happily ever after mummy, daddy and kid that, that isn't, you know, that's not the reality for an awful lot of people, but I choose healing always. Yes. I always choose healing. And I think that you, you made it clear that you, you didn't want 
the reader to think now that she's here, everything is going to be okay. No, no, I really didn't. I really didn't because it's memoir because it's, it's real. What's the, you know, if I wanted to write, Fiction, I could have written fiction. I could have written a lovely, happy ending, but that isn't most people's realities. And, and you're quite right. And, and even my publisher was sort of saying, Oh, you're going to give me a, a, you know, is there going to be a a happily ever after? And I was like, Melinda, Melinda should know know better what's going on. Yeah. Melinda should know better. (laughs) Melinda should know better. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I wouldn't expect that from her, really. Sarah Jane McCulloch King, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. The book is available at all good bookstores. It's available online wherever you buy your books, whether you buy real live paper books, whether you buy online books, ebooks, whatever you buy, just go and buy Mad Bad Love and How the Things We Love Can Nearly Kill Us. If you want more background into Sarah Jane's life, you can buy her book, Killing Caroline, What Happens When the Baby They Buried Comes Back. That is her first book. And I really would urge you to go and get them both. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been fabulous chatting to you. Janice, thank you so much. What a beautiful conversation. Thank you. It is an absolute pleasure. And to you, my listener, as always, take care of yourself, take care of each other, do what you love and read a book.